0: Alright, glad, glad to be with you, glad to have you, as today we are going to continue our study of Lutheran worship entitled The Rhythm of Faith. Everybody have a, a copy of our handout here? Everybody that wants one we can make more copies if we need them. You got a couple extra? Alright. Good, alright, let's get started with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we gather together in your name at your bidding and we hear and receive your word. Lord, open our hearts and minds and ears that we might hear, receive, and believe what you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so uh, two weeks ago, we got started on this topic of Lutheran worship, and we just kind of laid the groundwork, looked at worship more generally. And we said that worship is essentially not about what we do for God, but what? What God does for us. That's right. What God does for us, how He comes down with His grace and meets us, and then we in response respond with prayer, praise, thanksgiving, with lives of, of obedient faith and uh, good, good works toward others. But that is the rhythm of faith is receiving and responding, receiving and responding, you know so, one of these, okay? Receiving and responding. Get into rhythm. I don't know if that's rhythm or not, but <clears throat> no. <laughs> but I got I to gotta get a two-step. Hey, um, That's the idea, is receiving from God, getting into that rhythm. And we get out of rhythm when one of two things happens. When either, A, we think that we're the ones who have to do things for God, and only then will God conditionally bless us if, we, if he is so appeased by what we have to offer him. <clears throat> and so we just focus on what we're doing for him. You can get out of rhythm that way. But also on the flip side, if you only focus on what you're receiving, what you're getting, and never think about how it, it flows forth in that life of glad response, you can also get out of rhythm. We live into that rhythm of receiving and responding. Back and forth it goes. And that whole—that's our whole life of faith. I want to say it's our whole life of faith. It's not Sunday. It's every day, living in that rhythm of receiving and responding. But what happens on Sunday? What happens in worship? Is that we are inculcated into that way of being. In other words, we are immersed into this rhythm. All right. Any of you uh, made it over to off of Love Road? Um, in Benzonia, where the salmon go up up the river, okay? And the salmon, they don't understand this rhythm. You gotta go with the flow, salmon, right? We, want to go, we wanna get into that rhythm, get into that flow. Incidentally, that is so awesome watching those guys. That, we had so much fun. And have any of you guys, this is totally non secular, but while we were there watching the salmon climb, at the same time there were turtles coming down the hill, jumping into the water. Any of you ever seen this before? It was hilarious. I don't know how they knew it. Just instinctually, they're coming down and people are watching them. Little turtles. They get to the edge and they're like, Don't do it, buddy. Don't do it. "Ah!" I mean, you can't pay for entertainment like that. But today, we're going to get into the service proper and see how our worship forms us and shapes us in this rhythm of faith. And today, we're really only going to get to the very first part of the service, which is called the invocation. Invocation. Now, as we're getting going and thinking about this topic, my first question on your handout here is, what's in a name? What's in a name? Of course, from the dictionary, Webster's or otherwise. Name. A word or set of words by which a person, animal, place, or thing is known, addressed, or referred to. Okay, that's helpful. But what are some of the things that a name tells you about somebody. What, do, what is the significance of a name? Well, it puts a face mm-hmm. to something, like mm-hmm. you're Ryan Tanetti I can yeah. picture you when right. somebody says Ryan tanetti Yeah, isn't that interesting? Like, if you know somebody's name, it makes it easier for you to remember them mm-hmm. because now the name and the face, they come together, or people say that, oh, now I can put a name to a face, right? Um, So, okay. Good. Yeah, Tom. I'm not entirely sure what's all in a name, but, you know, change in names are significant events in the Old Testament. Absolutely. Some cultures uh, refrain from giving their name sometimes. Yeah, right. Um, And in in other cultures where people become Christians, for example, in India, um, some cases in Thailand, um, if you become a Christian, you're given a, a new name or a Christian name. Yeah. Yeah, Margot, did you have your hand up? Uh, I was just going to say, sometimes it tells what culture, what culture you're from. Sure, Did suggest what culture that, that you're from. Very much so. Or heritage, or occupation. Or heritage, or even occupation. That's right. The Smith, or what, what have you? Uh, anything else? It tells name? If you're a man or a woman. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. well. this was. I was joking about this with uh, with my brother, my, uh, when Chip the other day about my parents who are here right now not here right now incidentally they're skipping out on bible study but you uh most of you know they're both named pat and this was a character even and a saturday night live character in the 90s any of you remember this it's pat and nobody knows is it a man or a woman you know names pat anyhow um, <coughs> made life really fun for me in middle school when people found out my parents were both named pat um, <laughs> Okay, so, but it, it, can, it can usually identify that. Yes, of course. I digress. All of these things and more are what's wrapped up in a name. But as we're going to see here, uh, a name also does something very particular when, it's, when we're talking about God and the calling upon of God's name in worship. So number two, invocation um, comes from a Latin word, which means to call upon, invocare. And what are we calling upon? Calling upon the name of God calling upon the name of God. So this is that part at the very beginning of the service when I say, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's not just a, um, a nice little add-on to the service. or It's not even just a way of saying, all right, settle down, we're getting started. <laughs> there's more going on there. The invocare, the invocation. We're calling upon the name of God. And there's a neat little um, turn of, of words or thoughts here as well. Because the Greek word for church is ekklesia. Let me hear you say ekklesia. 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 Which comes, it's a compound from um, two Greek words, ek and kaleo. And it means literally to be called out. So the church is the called out assembly of believers. The called out people. Called out of the, of the world, so to speak. Uh, <clears throat> that's what it means to be church. But then to invocare is to call upon Um, to call upon God in prayer and praise and thanksgiving. And so there's this um, interesting dynamic. We are called out in order to call upon. I don't have anything more to say about that. I just think that's an interesting uh, little wordplay there as it happens. So this is what invocation is, to call upon the name of God. And this is how we start. I want to go through some scriptures and think about, biblically, what is the significance of of the name of God. And we've already talked, uh, um, Tom's already hinted and alluded to the, the fact that in the scriptures, and especially in the Old Testament, God is really big on names. I mean, can anyone think of some names, name changes that happen in the Old Testament that kind of suggest not just, you know, uh, somebody taking their uh, some sheets down to the, the office or something, but Israel. where it's really important, kind Israel. of. Israel, good was originally Jacob. Jacob. Yes, sorry to put you on the spot there. That, you're right. <laughs> <clears> uh, originally, Jacob becomes Israel. Well, hold on, I want to hang with that for just a second. Because Jacob means, anyone know? Bible Trivia Morning. Deceiver. The deceiver. deceiver. Yes. And then Israel, or Yisrael, means? To with God. Say that again. To wrestle with God. Wrestle with God. One who strives with God. And isn't this interesting? I've thought about this before, how the name that God gives to his people is that you're going to be a people who wrestles with me. And I think that there's both negative and positive connotations with that. Negative on the side of, why can't you ever just do what I tell you to do, right? Oh, <laughs> I gotta wrestle with you. But positive in the sense that this is very much the, the life of faith as well. It's wrestling with God, wrestling with him in prayer, wrestling like Jacob then Israel was. I won't, I won't let you go until you bless me. So, yes, Jacob to Israel. That was a good one. I heard another one over here. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, that's right. So he went from Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. And off the top of my head, I can't remember what the Sarah... Sarah, do you remember what the difference is between those? I don't know what the difference is, but I know Sarah means princess or noble one. Yeah, that's right. That's what I thought. And then Abraham is the father of multitudes, the father of of many nations. Uh, Anyone else? Name changes that you can solve. Paul to Saul. Exactly. I mean, this is a... Saul to Paul. Saul to Paul. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just, just check it out. Yeah, Just check it, See if you're paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Saul... Levi? To... What's that? Didn't Levi. Well, that's an interesting one. Matthew. Or so, yeah, Paul mentions Levi turned Matthew. Yeah. And uh, that, that name change, is not really disclosed how or when that happens. But how about his buddy, Peter, right? Yeah. Simon, who becomes Peter. And... Peter your name and Peter Petros means rock. rock or more to the point pebble. <laughs> True story. It's a, a word for cuz lithos would be like a big rock if you uh, lithograph that sort of thing. Really? Um, Petros is more like a pebble. Okay. And so Jesus is doing this sorry Pete. my, my brother Peter's here. Um, <laughs> and uh I, you know, this, it's one of these things where you see the Lord's sense of humor come out with these names. The other one that I like is he, he calls uh, the brothers bo which means the sons of thunder, okay? Um, uh, you know, it's, just, it's neat how that happens. Again and again, all this suffice it to say, God cares a lot about names. Names establish your identity, especially... Biblically speaking, your name, your identity, your mission, your purpose becomes wrapped up in your name. Now, when it comes to God Himself, how much more is that the case? That His identity is is wrapped up in His in the names that God gives to Himself. Um, The most significant one from the Old Testament is Yahweh, which is a third-person verb. When you remember the moment when God meets with Moses, and Moses says, "All right, so <clears throat> burning bush. Um, if I'm going to do what you want me to do, they're going to ask me. Okay, who sent you? Right. So what's your name?" And he says, "I am, I am who I am. Ehyeh asher And um, so Ehyeh is what he says. But then he says, "Tell them Yahweh." So Ehyeh means I am, or I am who I am. Ehyeh means he is who he is. Yahweh means he is who he is. Okay, uh, <clears throat> That's his, his identity. I am being. He is the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. Paul, or Paul says it, Saul turned Paul, says it in Acts chapter 17. So God's identity there. <clears throat> but then, I'm taking the long route to get to where I'm going here. But then you remember what Yahweh says to Moses when, when he discloses this to him. What does Moses have to do in that moment, right there? It says, "Take, kick, the yeah. shoes off. kick your shoes off, your <clears throat> take off your sandals. That's right, get your Nikes off." Not just a matter of, oh, well, wouldn't that be polite? Because God's name establishes His presence. That this is what we call a theophany, which is a fancy word that just means a, a God appearance. Okay. That God is present here. His name is holy and sacred, and it's not to be meddled with. That's why we have the second commandment, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain or not misuse God's name because his name establishes his presence. See? And let me give you just a few verses along these lines. In Exodus chapter 20, which is the chapter where he gives the Ten Commandments, later in the chapter, um, it says, an altar of earth you shall make for me, And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God says, where my name is, there I am. If I tell you to remember my name in that place, there I am to meet you in that place. Again, from Deuteronomy chapter 12. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. Those things go hand in hand. Put his name, make his habitation. There you shall go. And then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. It's synonymous with saying to make himself dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you. Your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Where his name is, there his presence is. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 7, this is a prayer of, of Solomon building the temple. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And get this, my eyes and my heart will be there for all his name, his presence, all of that is wrapped up in that name and that identity. To the extent that then uh, by the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the people were very almost afraid of using God's name, especially that holy name, sometimes called the Tetragrammaton of Yahweh. Um, Incidentally, this is why, so in Hebrew, originally there were no vowel points, there was just consonants. And it was very much an oral language, and before it was a written language even. And so when they write it down as kind of a shorthand, they would only write the consonants. But everybody would know how the word was pronounced because you would hear it pronounced all the time. So, but then, you know, fast forward hundreds of years, people who didn't speak it natively, they're just looking at consonants saying, how do we pronounce this, this or that name or this or that word Right? without the vowels there? So later, some guys called the Masoretes would include vowel points to, to indicate this is how you pronounce it. But <clears throat> this is how we got, sometimes you hear the name Jehovah given for the Lord. So Jehovah is another um, translation, mistranslation, of Yahweh. It's the same vowels, but instead of Yahweh, it's pronounced Yehovah. Okay, um, Because they misunderstood and misapplied the vowels that were supposed to be there. So Yahweh is the same as Jehovah. And <clears throat> this is why in many of our um, old hymns where it said Jehovah, it's been swapped out for other things. For example... Um, 918, uh, guide me, O oh, thou great Redeemer. 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 But used to be Jehovah. 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 <clears throat> all right, but I'm just rabbit trailing all over the place here. <laughs> this, so they uh, treated the name so sacredly, they were almost afraid to use it because they recognized to invoke God's name, to call upon his name, is to invoke his presence. And so when you just wanted to refer to him without invoking his presence, you would just say Hashem which means the name. You just say the name. The name has sent me um, without actually saying his name. <clears throat> but again, Psalm 91. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, invoke a bit, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Okay. That name, God's name, brings his presence, his refuge, his protection. But then, finally, you get into the New Testament. And Jesus, you guys know this verse, says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, what? In my name. name. And the the Greek sounds kind of funny to us, but it literally says, into my name. Gathered into my name, there am I among them. His name now, his name is that divine presence. Pointing, again, to the, the identity of our Lord Jesus. He's no mere teacher. He is the divine Son of God. Yeah, go ahead, Sally. Um, I, I always am kind of confused because of, with the translations, like sometimes they yep. use Lord with right. all capitals. Right. And what is L? Or the, sometimes it's translated sovereign. It explains sovereign Lord. the preface, but yeah. it's always hard. Because there's L-O theme, yes. and I don't know what, exactly what that Very is. Very good. Okay, so this is a good question. This is relevant. Um, Sally said, what is the deal with all the ways, <clears throat> um, when you're reading your English Bible, the different names that it'll give? And sometimes you'll see LORD all caps. Sometimes it's not all caps. Sometimes, you'll, depending on the translation you have, it'll say SOVEREIGN LORD, something like that. So the reason is this. Every place you see the LORD in all caps, that's a place where it's Yahweh where it's that, that divine, sacred name, the Tetragrammaton, okay. where it's just Lord and it's not all caps in the Old Testament. That's where it's the Hebrew word, which means Lord. Ad, it's the word Adonai. Okay. And this, so it's, it's kind of confusing. And then sometimes it's Adonai Yahweh. Okay. So what do translators do with that? Usually they translate Adonai, Lord. When they see Yahweh, they also call that Lord, all caps. So do you just translate that as Lord, Lord? <laughs> This is where, um, traditionally, they'll put either Sovereign Lord or Lord God. Um, but that's it's just kind of a, a wrinkle in translation. Now, I have seen translations that will use Yahweh, um, but you don't see that very often. But the Lord works all things together for the good. In the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, <clears throat> what were they going to do with that? Well, they they just kind of followed that tradition of when Yahweh came up, they translated it as Kyrios, which means, Lord. So that now, Paul especially will make hay with this. In his letters, he'll take all of these Old Testament scriptures, which refer to the Lord, meaning Yahweh, and now Paul will transpose them to the Lord Jesus. Now, this is so cool. i got to give you just one example real quick. Thank you, Sally. You... Um, go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This is uh, really a central passage. This is page 1165 in the uh, red ones, if you have the large print one, It's not really helpful. Um, <clears throat> this is really one of the central passages of what we call Christology. In other words, understanding the identity of Christ Jesus, who he is. So Philippians chapter 2, you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. If you hit Colossians and Timothy and Thessalonians, you've gone too far. Philippians 2, verse, let's see. I'll pick up with verse 8. Talking about Christ. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, what's fascinating with this is that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 45, I think. And I did not look this up. So we'll see. Yes, good. Isaiah 45, <clears throat> verse 22 says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, only in Yahweh, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. So now, Paul has transposed this Old Testament word, to me, every knee shall bow, to Yahweh. Now he said, oh no, this is talking about the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, and it was Paul's able to make that move because of the way the translations work through the ages that Kyrios now means Lord. You with me? You're kind of like, okay. <laughs> Get back to the point. Right. <clears throat> we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there. So, Main thing we're talking about here then is the name invokes God's presence. Name means presence. You're with me. All right. So then, number four on your handout. In the context of our worship and our liturgy, the invocation at the beginning of worship, the invocation of God's name evokes holy baptism. Evokes holy baptism where here God was present for you and me through his name. So Jesus says in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, an interesting point for understanding God as Trinity here, um, and you can see it even in the English, and it's clearer still in the Greek, Jesus is baptizing them into the name, singular or plural? Singular. Singular. Into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One name, three persons. He doesn't say baptize them into the names of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but into the name. So that baptism is fundamentally about having the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit applied to you so that just like it used to be out on the ranch maybe they still do this right you get branded and says this one belongs to circle k ranch or whatever it might be in baptism you are branded with the name of father son and holy spirit god's presence has gathered you into himself into his family i say that this evokes holy baptism because Again, um, during the rite of holy baptism, we say, Receive the sign of the holy cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. So when we begin our worship with that invocation, that calling upon God's triune name, we are remembering who and whose we are. We're remembering that we are baptized children of God. That we belong to him. That he has made us his own. See, So that it's not just, okay, this is nice, a nice way to kind of start the service or something like that. But it's fundamentally bringing us back to our baptismal identity. Okay? All right. Questions about that? You guys tracking with me there? All right. <clears throat> Then turn the next page. <clears throat> and we're going to uh, get a little, little bit interactive here today. Because when we um, have the invocation and that name, <clears throat> one of the things that sometimes do is the sign of the cross. The sign of the cross. And number five on your handout the sign of the cross reinforces with the hands what's believed in the heart. Reinforces with the hands what's believed in the heart. So 1 Timothy 2.8 says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands. Or Psalm 63. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Worship is a very embodied thing. It's not just happening in the mind, it's happening in the body. It's happening in the heart, but it can also happen in the hands. Now I'm curious, when I, was, um, when I was a, a boy, and uh, PJ and I, or Pete, I call him PJ, <coughs> Peter Joseph, when he and I, we would go to worship with our folks, and one week we'd go to the Catholic Church, one week we'd go to the Lutheran Church, and I've told you before, I didn't notice a whole lot of differences. But one difference I noticed is that at the Catholic Church, they would always be making the sign of the cross. And I'd go to the Lutheran Church, and at my Lutheran Church, nobody did that. I didn't see that at all. But as I got older, and especially as I got to seminary, I came to find out that's not the case in every Lutheran church, that there's many Lutheran churches where um, some or even most people will make the sign of the cross. So I'm curious, for those of you who grew up in, in Lutheran churches, I realize some of you grew up in different ones or no church. We'll get to that in a second. But um, for those of you who grew up in Lutheran churches, did your church, did people in your church make the sign of the cross that you can recall? No. no. Not too much. No, okay. Very few. Maybe maybe here and there. Now, how about some of you folks from other traditions? I know we've got some folks coming out of uh, Baptist or uh, Episcopalian. Did you, did you see that at all in, in your church, Sign of the Cross? The Catholic always the Of course, the Catholic, right. Um, yeah, go ahead, John. I have been at some of churches that didn't, but it's fairly rare. Episcopalian, I think a couple of Episcopalian church, that did do it. Yeah, so John says, uh, in his experience, it's rare in the Lutheran church, sometimes in the Episcopalian church, something like that. that No, no, most Protestants, you you won't. Now, but I find it kind of interesting that among Lutherans, it's not more common. And the reason I say that is because right there in the small catechism, um, you have in the section on daily prayers, Luther says, in the morning when you get up, Make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, in the, name of the Son, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Make the sign of the Holy Cross, Luther says. Now some people would say, well, that's just because Luther had been a good Catholic and that he'd known nothing otherwise. But <clears throat> this, is, this is Martin Luther are talking about. If he found something that he thought was contrary to good practice, he would say, eh, getting rid of that. Okay. And he writes the small catechism in 1529. This is 12 years after kind of the kickoff of the Reformation. So he has a lot of time to, to think about that. But he says this is a good and salutary practice. This isn't the only place he talks about it. but This is one that we're all familiar with, the small catechism. Make the sign of the Holy Cross. And this is an extremely ancient practice of Christians. I'll um, give you a couple of examples here. So Tertullian was one of the great church fathers Um, who died around the year 200 AD. So this is second century already. He writes this, he says, In all our undertakings, when we enter a place or leave it, before we dress, before we bathe, when we take our meals, when we light the lamps in the evening, before we retire at night, when we sit down to read, before each new task, we trace the sign of the cross on our foreheads. So this was already a common, established practice by Tertullian's time, making the sign of the cross. And I came across a, a lovely quote from a guy, Paul Lang, he's a more recent, mid-1900s guy, uh, Lutheran pastor in California. He wrote a book, Ceremony and Celebration, where he says this, The Holy Cross is the symbol of our salvation. We were signed with it when we were baptized. It is the sign by which the church blesses people and things. By using it, we become part of the wonderful history of our faith and companions in the company of the saints. It's right that we should make the sign of the cross frequently and to glory in it, saying with St. Paul, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14. So here again, you've got a guy really strongly advocating for making the sign of the cross. Now, I need to do a caveat here, qualification. This is something that's firmly in the area of what we call adiaphora. That's that fancy word which means indifferent things. Or more to the point, things that are neither commanded nor forbidden in the scripture. Making the sign of the cross is neither something that it says you have to do, nor is it something that that it says you must never do. It's the sort of thing that Christians can decide, okay, is this helpful to my faith in some way, or is it not? And from my perspective, I think that it is helpful. I've taught, we've taught our kids to make the sign of the cross from the time that they were very young. And now they just do it instinctually. When we sit down for meals, for example, and we go to pray, we, say, we begin by saying, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they make the sign of the cross. Even Ellie now, you'll watch her. It's hilarious. She'll just kind of do one of these. You know? <laughs> I'm not sure exactly. I know you guys are doing something, like waving your hand around there. Why do I want them to do that? Because I want as much as I can, through whatever means possible, to reinforce for them their identity as God's beloved baptized children. See? And, and by doing this, it's a small, simple way where with the hands we can reinforce what's in the heart. You with me? Now, it's not a superstitious thing. You know, I'm a big baseball fan, and baseball players, they get up to the plate right before they step in. They say, right, you know, they do their... Gloves. Nomar Garcia-Pera. Anybody remember Nomar Garcia-Pera for the Boston Red Sox? He was the best at this. He, he was like totally OCD going around with his gloves, you know, make the sign of the cross like six times and then, you know, and then, okay, get in there every time. Uh, it's not a superstitious thing, see. Making the sign of the cross is not like having a, a rabbit's foot in your pocket or something like that. But it's a way that we are able to um, invoke, to call upon God and to remember God who and whose we are. You with me? All right. Now, nobody has to. I'm not going to kick you out of the church if you don't make the sign of the cross. But for those of you who haven't done it or never learned how to do it, I wanted to give you a brief tutorial today. And uh, on the back of your sheet here, you have a handy-dandy diagram. Okay? You think, uh, how hard could this be? It's not hard, but like anything, if it's something that you haven't done before, you can feel self-conscious about it. Am I doing it right? You know, am I doing it wrong? Of course, it's just like when you're in high school and you're worried about what other people are thinking. Everybody else is thinking about themselves. You're just thinking about yourself, too, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <clears throat> Those was joke, guys, sorry. <clears throat> how to make the sign of the cross. Well, so here's, you take, your, take three fingers, take Your thumb and your middle finger and your pointer finger. And this is an easy one. Why do we do it with three fingers? So you guys, you're right there with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, all of this stuff, it's small, simple things, but it evokes a deeper symbolism, see? All right, so you get your three fingers together for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you touch your forehead in the name of the Father. Then you touch your chest and of the Son. Touch your right shoulder, end of the Holy, and then your left shoulder, Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Tom, I'll put you on the spot. Growing up as a Catholic, how did you learn to do it? Left to right. Left to right. I'm going to. Let's see if anybody can guess why we might do it right to left. Because we're Lutheran, doggone it. And so I told you how Luther didn't say, get rid of the sign of the cross. But some Lutherans did say, but oh, we got to do it a little bit different from the Catholics. <laughs> and you'll, if you read about this, um, you'll see, well, this goes back to an even more ancient practice. The Eastern Orthodox also do it right to left. And so we're actually going back even further than the Roman Catholics, okay? <clears> okay. <throat> Be that as it may, if you go left to right instead of right to left, the liturgical police aren't going to jump out and suddenly you know, pull you in. Whoop! All right, we got a crypto-Catholic in our midst here. This guy's going left to right. We can tell that you're not one of us. No, it's not that big of a deal. So absolutely not the left hand. <clears throat> but, oh, okay. So uh, Sally brings up another thing. She says absolutely not the left hand then. Why would it be right hand rather than left hand? There's no bit of symbolism. Well, left hand is kind of sinister. Well, that's so. She says, "Left hand's kind of sinister." All right, where are my lefties here? Show of hands with your left hand, no less. Yeah. If Anne were here, she'd be she'd be with it too. Um, so sinister, doesn't it? I think it actually means left-handed or something, doesn't it? I'm sorry. I, that's just what it is in Latin. Right from the Latin. Um, and in the scriptures, I mean, it talks about Jesus ascending to the right hand of the father. Uh, you think of the sheep and the goats, the sheep are on the?
1: Left. right. Or right. right. right.
0: The sheep are on the right, goats are on the left. Yep. Stephen's... Yes. Stephen saw Jesus sitting at the, at the right hand of God. Why does the right have this prominence? I don't know. I keep waiting, oh, you guys. In our, our cultural moment where people are offended about this, that, and everything, I keep waiting for the, the left-handers' lobby to come along and say, we need to change the Bible. You know, it's <laughs> oppressive against left-handers. But that hasn't happened yet, thankfully. But, yeah, John. Well, there, there was the old thing that you had to get one hand dirty you get your left hand dirty and keep your right hand clean. Yes. It gave the, the, that was important, more important in those days. For hygiene compared, purposes. Yeah. Right, yep. Compared to today when we watch yep. both hands. Uh, Lord willing. Right. Uh, right. So John's, John's right. That at times it's been a hygiene thing too. I don't so, know if it's true, but they used to think there were more right-handed people than left-handed people. Well, well, yeah. So therefore... Oh, if the gods just playing favorites. Must be the right ones doing it, not <laughs> yeah. left-handed people. I'm not gonna go there. It just, they're very special. They're very special. Well. Yes. But we do read from left to right. right. Great point. But Hebrew didn't. They read from yeah. from right to left. So whatever, be that as it may. So Sally, um, the answer is I've never seen anybody do it with their left hand. But Court, if you're tempted to do that. I'm not going to poo-poo you. I always do it then. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thank you for asking on his on his behalf. So uh, customarily. I mean, it's right if you, if you look at it this way in your face. It <laughs> yeah. It. That's just, that's so yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's true. If you kind of mirror me. Oh, this is just getting way too complicated. <laughs> when I was in the Army, that's what they said. Okay, now you left-handed people. This is the way you yeah. do this maneuver right? right. Or the, for the right-handed. And left-handed, you just do it the back. the have <laughs> <laughs> just, just do the opposite. No big deal. So, uh, okay, so however however you do it, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> um, and, let, and let me just uh, kind of conclude by telling you some times and places where that's done, both in the worship service and in general. So, in the service itself, I don't have the whole um, liturgy with us here, but you'll notice, so go back to the front page where you have that section, just the invocation. And you've probably seen this before. It says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see the little cross there. Okay. So wherever you see that in the liturgy, that's an indication that this is a place where traditionally the sign of the cross would be made. Now just off the top of your heads, can anybody think of other places where you've, where you've seen that or where that shows up in the worship service? At the end of absolution. With the absolution. Okay. So you are absolved in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So sign of the cross is appropriate there. Anywhere else? In the, at the creed. creed. Yep, at the end of the creed. And the life of the world to come. Now I've wondered, I, I don't have a conclusive answer on why it shows up there. It's clear in other places. Um, I suspect that it has something like this. When we think about the life of the world to come, maybe our first thought goes, how can I be certain that I will be a part of that that life? To make the sign of the cross there reminds us, this is why I will be admitted, not because of my good deeds or my inherent righteousness. I will be admitted to the life of the world to come because I belong to Christ, because I bear that baptismal branding on myself. That's just my conjecture. Um, There are two other places where it shows up. I believe the words of the Lord. The word of the words of the Lord. So the words of institution. Okay. So when um, when we hear Jesus saying, "This is my body," "This is my blood," and you'll you'll see me um, making the sign of the cross over the elements, consecrating the elements, setting them apart for this sacred use. That's also a place where you are free or not to make the sign of the cross. And then one more at the very end with the, with the benediction. So the Lord bless you. Keep you, the Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you, the Lord, um, lift up his countenance upon you, give you his favor and give you peace. That's another place too. So that, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the benediction in five years. Um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Um, that there's that arc of worship as well, see? There's the rhythm and then there's also this overall arc. We start in God's name and then we end with his name, and we are sent forth in his name. So I would encourage you to try that, to, to try doing the sign of the cross in the worship service, and then also in your day to day life, as Luther himself recommends. When you wake up in the morning to make the sign of the cross, you do your morning prayers, perhaps when you lay yourself down to bed, now I lay me down to sleep, um, to make the sign of the cross, remembering who and whose you are as you are um, going about your day. Yeah, Tom? I'm kind of curious, when did it? Sure. Yeah. So Tom's question is, when did it move? So Tertullian suggested that they just made the sign on the forehead. When did it go from there to being, you know, the full-bodied one, so to speak? And I'm, I'm not sure. That's a good question. It'd be interesting to, to track how that, how and when that came to be. Margo, you have a question. Uh, one of the lecturers talked about this. Yeah. Right, in the sign of the cross, and he suggested definitely do it before you go to sleep at night. Sure. To keep the evil one away, and you will much better through the night Okay, and I think that's true yeah well now uh, was that Art Just that said that? it was either him or Bruzek I I would maybe quibble just a little bit with the the venerable men when you put it that way it can sound almost kind of superstitious right you gotta do this but I hear what they're saying and I think it is um, I mean Luther would say again and again to uh, God's name a day to scare the devil away right he didn't say that exactly I just said that right now but to remember God's name is absolutely protection from, from the evil one. And in the prayers, the morning and evening prayers, in the catechism, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. Absolutely appropriate place to make the sign of the holy cross. And, uh, and you will sleep better. I like that. That's very good. Good. Any last questions? Yeah, Esther. Isn't there a verse in Isaiah that talks about God will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on the Lord? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's a good yeah. Keep your mind. Isaiah thirty, I, th- I think it is. He keeps. He the Lord will keep in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on the Lord. It's a good way to keep the mind stayed on the Lord. Ted, did I see a hand over? Here? Is there any place where it's not appropriate? Oh, good question. Is there any place where it's not appropriate? Did you have anything in mind? Um, well, maybe in the batter's box. No. Um, is there any place where it's? Um. I'll have to think about that. Nothing like immediately springs to mind. Any of you have a, a thought where it might not be a, appropriate? No. Okay. A baseball. Stadium. No, that's, no. I'm. I, I think <laughs> in almost in almost any no, no, uh, any case. We, but I'll think on that, to, on that now, like, body, Maybe well not. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah, and Sally. Well, probably for Christian, for non Christian. Like um, I think um, somebody said that. They went to, uh, I think it was some place in Indonesia, and there were pe- people wearing crosses. And uh, they were wondering, well, are these Christian people? And they said, no, they just that's just somehow uh, an ornament for Sure, them. right, very and much so. So if it's not a Christian person, it wouldn't be... Wouldn't appropriate. be appropriate. Perhaps not. And to be sure, that's not just in Indonesia, but in America, too, where people well, wear without thinking about it. Simple. Yes. Um, And, uh, well, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I would just, the flip side of that, someone, Ted asked where wouldn't it be appropriate. I'm wondering where uh, Lutherans or even Catholics or whatever find it continually appropriate. Now, we're talking about in the church service, and we went through that. But, you know, there's (coughs) baptisms, weddings, funerals. They just go down the list of of various things, eating uh, at the bedside of a... I mean, it seems as though the appropriateness of it can get quite expansive. Sure, no, absolutely. I mean, it's appropriate wherever you're calling upon the name of God and want to remember your identity in him. Now, I have thought, and I'll leave you guys with this. Ted, now as we talk about this, I can think of the one time when it would not be appropriate for you to make the sign of the cross. And this is, this is in typical Lutheran contrarian fashion, if somebody tells you, you have to make the sign of the (laughs) Ah. cross. And, in fact, there's an article in our Book of Concord, our Lutheran Confessions, there's an article on adiaphora, or these indifferent things, and it says, adiaphora are fine. They may be practiced wherever local custom dictates or, or what have you. The only time they become problematic is when someone tells you that your salvation is somehow at stake by doing or not doing something which is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. So that if somebody were to say to you, well, if you don't make the sign of the cross, you're not a real Christian, right? You don't belong to Christ. Then we would say, eh, pump the brakes there, boss. Um, Because this is something that is good for us to do. You know, I'm encouraging it for you. But don't let anybody tell you, you have to do this in order to be saved. So there's an answer for you. Thanks very much, guys, for being here. And next week, we'll continue with confession and absolution. See you then.